This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Here at Politics and Prose, we can think of absolutely no better way to honor the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., especially on this national holiday named for him, than by having this extraordinary, distinguished group of panelists to help engage, inform, educate, and lead us in a conversation about race in America. Before we get going, uh, let me just explain for a minute the origin of this program. Tonight's panel is our fifth in a series uh, of ongoing uh, panel discussions called Race in America. The first was in October of 2015 in response in part to a series of distressing and all too frequent shootings of young black men at the hands of police officers in cities across our country. And I want, and I speak on behalf of our entire staff at Politics in Prose in thanking uh, our great friend, April Ryan, for being the brains behind these panel discussions. <laughs> April suggested to me and my husband, Brad, who's somewhere here, who's the co-owner of the store and our programs director, there he is, um, Susan Call, uh, that PNP could and should become a venue for discussions about racial issues. She helped us organize the first and every subsequent panel, including tonight's, and for each session, she's recruited speakers whose voices, writings, and ideas are among the most influential, the most provocative, and the most respected on this critically important and urgent subject. Tonight's panel is no exception. Each of our guests is a powerhouse in his or her field. We're so privileged to have them here, and we are so grateful for their generosity of time. Uh, let me just make, because I can't help myself, uh, one quick editorial comment as a co-owner of PNP. It's not just the distressing events of the past few days that remind us that this conversation needs to happen on a daily, if not hourly, if not minute by minute basis in America. It needs to happen in every community. And by having these conversations, maybe, and I don't even want to say maybe, because I just have to believe we will begin to reclaim the values of tolerance, diversity, inclusion, and respect that are currently under assault. After the 2016 election, we felt even more committed than ever to doing our part as an independent bookstore, to provide a platform for conversations like the one we'll have tonight, to be a safe space where people could engage in thoughtful, rigorous, respectful dialogue about the challenges of the larger world. Never before have we felt that mission is as important as it is now. So we want to thank all of you for being part of our journey and our conversation and for being part of our community tonight and moving forward. And now for our panel, uh, starting to April's left, your right, I guess, if you're in the audience, um, Dr. Mary Frances Berry is one of the wisest thinkers in our country about civil rights, gender equality, and social justice. She's explored each of these issues from a range of perspectives and experiences. As a scholar and educator, she was chancellor of the University of Colorado at Boulder and is currently the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought and Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also done so as a lawyer, policymaker, and advocate. She's the former chairwoman of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, advocating for her causes through four presidencies, at least, and received the Nelson Mandela Award from the government of South Africa for her work fighting apartheid. As a writer and social commentator, She's the author of a dozen, more than a dozen books, nearly a dozen books, somewhere around 13, a dozen books. 13, 13, more than a dozen books, <laughs> but who's counting? Uh, the next of which is History Teaches Us to Resist, 
forthcoming in March from Beacon Press. She will be here to talk about that book, so please come. And by the way, since we're local and we care about local here, she is also a graduate of Howard University. Um, next up, we have someone who, if you, it, <laughs> local also, okay. Next up, we have someone who, if you don't know who he is, honestly, you've been in a deep slumber for a very long time. Bishop T.D. Jake's work spans across virtually every aspect of American life and has touched millions and millions of men, women, and children across our country. And here's how he does it. Through sermons, music, plays, movies, conferences, festivals, and more. As senior pastor of the Potter's House, a global humanitarian organization and 30,000 member ch church located in Dallas, and the author of many books, including most recently Soar, Build Your Vision from the Ground Up, Bishop Jakes extends his message of love, empowerment, and finding purpose in life with compassion, humanity, and a deep grounding in faith. Also with us tonight, oops, I'm gonna, s oh, okay, well, let me, uh, well, Wesley Lowry is next. I had you in the opposite order, but that's right. Uh, Wes Lowry is a Pulitzer Prize winning national correspondent at the Washington Post, whose beat includes justice, race, and the law. He's been the paper's lead reporter covering police shootings and the Black Lives Matter protest movement his work has appeared in the Boston Globe, the Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Sports Illustrated. His first book was a New York Times bestseller, They Can't, they Can't Kill Us All, which is awarded the 2017 Christopher Isherwood Prize for autobiographical prose by the Los Angeles Times Book Prizes. He's also an on-air contributor at CNN. And last but never least, uh, Jason Riley is with us tonight at the end. He's a veteran member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, commentator on Fox News on subjects ranging from politics to economics, immigration, and race. Jason has also written three books, the most re recent of which is entitled False Black Power, an Assessment of Race Relations in the Obama Era. And of course we have, I'm gonna say we saved the best for last because you know, she's, she's, a, she's a regular around here. April Ryan is not only the origi originator of this series, but also our esteemed and treasure, treasured moderator. April, too, has appeared at PNP for her two books, The President in Black and White, Presidency in Black and White, and At Mama's Knee. As many of you know, she's Washington bureau chief for White House and, and White House correspondent for American Urban Radio, as well as a CNN commentator. In fact, she's such a veteran White House correspondent that I think it's this Saturday, she is going to mark her 21st year covering the White House. Last Saturday, she's passed her 21st year. She's into her 22nd year. And I think it may be fair to say that the current administration has been her most challenging, but <laughs> she can answer that better than I can. Um, but regardless of the challenge, and I think it has been challenging for anyone covering the White House, uh, April has won ever more respect for her courage in speaking truth to power and for reminding those whom she covers, as well as her radio audience, audiences that span far and wide, that facts matter, that evidence matters, that character matters, and that truthfulness matters. So thank you all for being here tonight. Please join me in welcoming this wonderful panel of <laughs> journalists. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Brad. Let's give a big round of applause to politics. Yeah, Lisa. <laughs> to politics and prose for this fifth installment in this Race in America series. Let's give them a big round of applause. <laughs> and the reason why I say that is because a lot of people don't have the vision and the understanding to see that there is 
something percolating to the surface. And politics and prose had the foresight. And I also want to give a big shout out to C-SPAN, who's been there with us as well. And you will be able to see this on C-SPAN. I'm not sure of the date, but trust me, be on your best behavior tonight. <laughs> okay. All right now, my activist to my left. Um, this will be a civil conversation. Civil conversation. We sit on all sides of the spectrum of this issue, but there will be a civil conversation on this matter. And I want to break the Twitter tonight on MLK Day. I want you to hashtag race in America. Tweet it out right now. Race in America, hashtag. And if you hear something or see something you like, take a picture, hashtag it, give a quote, make sure it's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and put it out there. So, MLK Day 2018. I'm just so thankful to have this wonderful panel here. But for a time such as this, I'm sad today because Friday, I had to ask a United States sitting president when he signed a proclamation about Dr. King if he was a racist. Again, I'm sad today about that. But with the patterns that have been going on and all the other issues that have been happening globally, this is the perfect place to be and for the conversation to be had. Not only is this the 50th anniversary year of the assassination of the dreamer, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., there are two more anniversaries. There's an anniversary for the Poor People's Campaign, 50 years. And there's another anniversary, 50 years after the Kerner Commission report. This is a big year. But I think back to a couple of years ago when I was in Selma with President Barack Obama celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday. If you took a sepia-toned picture of that day and put it up against, or a black and white picture of that day, and put it up against today, it would still look the exact same. The economics hasn't changed. Yeah, the black boys and black girls can go to school with white people, but Selma still looks the same. But what the irony is, just a few weeks ago in December, that black belt to include Selma, Alabama, you know, my friend John King at CNN likes to say when he's at the board, the black belt is about the richness of the soil. Well, I say it's the richness of the spirit. And they change the, the, the black people. That's what Mary Frances put the slavery yes. Um, I look to the fact that Selma put Doug Jones over the top in Alabama. Fifty years later, the spirit wants change, but what does that change look like in 2018? And what are the lessons to be learned from the past as we move forward, as we are sitting in the now moment? And I want to go start with Dr. Mary Frances Berry, who I love sitting at the knee and listening to her wisdom and, and, and the stories that she tells. She told me a story just this week, and I want you to regale it, um, to give it to the crowd. When Coretta Scott King, the widow of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., was alive, they used to talk on MLK Day. And the question was, what was the question, Dr. Barry? Use your microphone. Use your microphone. Your microphone. Turn it on. Okay. It would be what we would talk about two things. 
One, we talk about what would Martin do about whatever was going on. You know, what would Martin do? And we would talk about it. And then we would say, she would say, well, what would Martin say? And we would talk about what Martin would have said about whatever was going on. And this was for years. Um, and in between Martin Luther King Day, depending on what was happening around the world, so I always ask myself, I just came back from speaking down in Tampa for their Martin Luther King celebration. And what I talked about is what Martin would say and what he would do about all that's going on. And um, one of the stories, you want me to tell the story? Tell the story. One of the stories one time was the, the LBGT groups had been wanting her to come out and say something in favor of the rights of people without regard to sexual orientation. And she told me, she said, you know, the men who were with Martin, and whenever she said that, she meant the guys who were in SCCLC with Martin. We knew which men, she didn't have to name them, have said, I shouldn't do it. Because that's not my issue, and that's not your issue, and Coretta, don't do it. But she said, now, we have to think about it. What would Martin do? And we talked about it. And of course, Martin, not only was he a race man and a class man, but he was a human rights man. And he believed in the rights of all people. And I said, that's how we have to think about it. And she said, yeah. She said, so Martin would do it. I don't care what they said. But she said, I tell you what, if you come down here to Atlanta and come out and stand with me, I'll come out and do it. And she said, now, what would Martin say? And we talked about that. But that was a story. That were other things over time. But I think one of the lodestars, and I often think about it myself whenever I am in crisis over some issue of social justice. You know, when we were doing Free South African Movement, we were going to jail every five minutes. We would say, well, what would Martin do about this, that, or the other? What would he say? And I think that's an appropriate lodestar to try to think about on a day like this. But you also said something about there were components of what Dr. King would do, though. One yes. would be to organize. And what would be the One next piece? One of the piece? things that he always would do about issues is to, and he learned over time. That's the other thing. I mean, he wasn't just uh, born with so much wisdom that he didn't need to learn anything. And when he was chosen to be the leader by the people in Montgomery, in that church, because he wasn't born as a leader with a little thing on his belly saying, you're the leader. He learned when they made mistakes, like the Albany movement was a terrible uh, failure. There were some failures throughout this, and he would learn. He learned how to strategize, how to organize, how to conceptualize, how to pick targets, and how to figure out what you were going to get out of some situation you were trying to lead the people because, as he would say, an effective leader is, is not somebody who tries to lead people and you don't <coughs> sit around and figure out what you're trying to do, what the end result ought to be. You ought to, you ought to be you ought to organized. It's not enough even to be courageous and to be willing to sacrifice. You have to be smart and strategic about what you're doing. And so that, I think, is something we should all learn about uh, what he did and how we go about this resistance 
that we're engaged in uh, at this hour. Leverage and resistance and... Leverage, that's another thing, leverage. I sometimes think that, and I said this to the folks in Tampa to see what they thought. I said, you know, if I were Dick Durbin and I was in the White House and the president said whatever he said, I don't know, you got two guys who like him who said he didn't and one guy who hates him who says he did, and then other people running around in circles. But whatever he said or however he said it or whatever, I have been in the White House and had people say stuff that they wouldn't want me to say outside uh -oh. that they did, and I am not going to tell that story. Uh -oh. <laughs> but uh, uh, I used it, leverage. I always think about what Martin said about using, t using for the people, for the cause you're concerned with. You know, and I would say, do you want me to go out and tell people that you did so-and-so, so-and-so, you said so-and-so, so-and-so? Now, this issue that I'm trying to deal with that I want you to take care of, now, if I can get you to take care of that, then, you know, I might forget about what you just <laughs> said and what you just did. You know, if you will do DACA for me and shut up, <laughs> you know, I might go on home. Uh, so that's the kind of leverage that I need. So that's interesting. Bishop Jakes, Bishop T.D. Jakes is here in the house. I used to watch when he used to go, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. <laughs> but, you know, Bishop Jakes, um, Dr. Berry brought in what happened this week. The week started out with the president saying, you know, I want a bill of love. And then it turned to something drastically different. Is this about love? Is this about heart? This whole situation, be it immigration, be it any kind of policy that's on the table, is it about love or is it just about the numbers and what the economics look like? Well, to me, first of all, thank you for allowing me to be on this platform. I'm way out of my league, but uh, since I'm here, I might as well say something. No, you're not. Uh, it, it occurs to me that it, it, that it is, in fact, about love. But love is hard to legislate. You can't pass an amendment that causes people to love. You can monitor, you can get a person not to say things, but you can't get them not to think them and not to mean them. And I think that's a futile pursuit for us as American people to try to manage the hearts of people. Uh, only God can do that. <laughs> uh, sometimes I wonder if we can even manage our own feelings and emotions. I, th I think that at the end of the day, we will not rise and fall on the backs of what one or two people think or say, whether it is appropriate or inappropriate. We will rise or fall because we have not corrected failed systems that eat the underbelly of our society. And when you look at those failed systems like the criminal justice system, like the immigration system, like the education system, that causes uh, underprivileged people and underserved people not to have fair opportunities, while this story is titillating and aggravating and a lot of other adjectives that, that I uh, won't use, I think it is a distraction from the deeper issue that we must get to. It's not about personalities, it's about policies. It's about getting policies in place that will really bring about the kinds of uh, change that will cause people to live a better life, that will really affect people who are underserved and don't have the proper opportunities. At the end of the day, we the people define what America is. And we have to take that right back. Uh, we live in a society that we have the advantage of all of this technology and it's created an atmosphere whereby we can get information in breakneck speed. And there are 
there are pros and cons to that system because on the other hand, what we think about any issue is governed by who we watch or who we read. And because behind the scenes, behind the well-meaning producers and, 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 and journalists like yourself and others, there are profiteers who profit by our fighting. We are consequently fed information that keep us at odds with each other rather than finding common ground. If we could go back to the old-fashioned ways of actually talking to each other and not learning about each other through what we read about each other, we might be able to move the country closer to that love you talk about and closer to what Martin would do and closer to what we want for our children and for our grandchildren and in a world that really <clears throat> thinks beyond ratings and sensationalism and pitting one group of people against the other group of people uh, as if we're scoring points. Lately, what I think we're seeing in Washington is almost like watching a football game. Uh, it's about scoring points rather than caring about people. And it is, in fact, that frustration that has caused people sometimes to make poor choices in who we allow to represent us in this country. And I think that has to change, and we have the power to change that, and that power belongs to every person who has a voice and who makes a vote and casts a ballot. Thank you, Bishop Jakes. Oh. Wes, you are digging into the numbers, the facts, the issues when it surrounds race. What's key on the table right now? I'm listening to Bishop Jakes, and you were, I, I watched you nod in agreement. Give us the facts, because there's so much misinformation. I mean, I remember last week I was on a show um, right after that it happened, and someone was talking about, oh, well, you know, the, the brown people, the brown immigrants don't bring something to the table. You know, they don't have great education. And we found uh, from the Center for American Progress, who's done a report, you know, in, in 2012 and in 2018, that shows that uh, black immigrants actually attain more degrees and higher degrees than any other immigrant group in the nation. So talk to us about how facts matter when it comes to these heart issues. Well, they, they do, and I, and, I won't, and, and I won't suggest that I, that I am the repository of all of the facts either. But right? you got so a lot of them. I got some of them. <laughs> uh, but, but, I, but, I think that they're, but I do think that that's important. I think having conversations in the presence of real information as opposed to um, in, in a space where we're just making assumptions about each other and about other groups of people, I think are I think is important. Um, you know, this immigration conversation, in many ways, is indicative of where there are fundamental ideological disagreements between both our political parties and and large swaths of the nation. I think that's one of the things that has been interesting for me as an observer, and I think infuriating for many people, has been this feeling that things that were otherwise taken for granted as givens, um, beliefs that were believed to be shared across the American experience, uh, that in fact were more ideologically contentious than, than people believed, right? So much of this immigration conversation has been specifically about um, what type of nation are we in terms of who we welcome and who we want coming into our nation, and there's a segment of the American population that believes that we are a shining city in the hill and are the, and that we should have an open door um, to the tired and the rundown and the refugee and and there's an an, an ideology um, as 
seemingly clumsily expressed by the president and, and some people close to him um, that no, what we want is a highly selective set of people who we are allowing in, and unless you are bringing something we don't otherwise have, why should we let you come to our uh, to our shores? Uh, but and and because of that, you can see kind of an opening for. Um, people to superimpose, whether it be their stereotypes or their beliefs about certain groups of people, onto that conversation, right? T again, not to litigate who was in the room and who was not and what version we're going to believe, but the, the comments, you know, that, that my colleague has reported from that room, you know, suggest the president said, um, you know, or, or question why we would want refugees and immigrants coming from, from, from Haiti, from the Caribbean islands, and, and from Africa. Why would we want black immigrants coming in? Why wouldn't we want more immigrants coming from places like Norway? Um, as, as you noted, uh, when you look, you know, black immigrants are an increasing percentage of the immigrants coming in the United States of America, um, and one of the largest growing groups uh, of folks who are, who are coming over. While we often have a conversation about immigration as it relates specifically to the Middle East um, and to our brothers and sisters in Central and South America, black immigrants are, are the largest growing group of immigrants coming to the States. They also, after they arrive, as, as you noted, attain higher education at rates that surpass, one, what us Native Americans achieve, but but too higher than um, any other uh, immigrant group. Beyond that, the labor force participation rates of black immigrants are higher than that of any other immigrant group. Um, that black immigrants are the most likely immigrants to come to America, get a job, pay taxes, be working within our economic system, right? And so this is a group of highly productive um, folks who, who are coming over, building communities, attaining wealth, um, and contributing to society. Now, again, the politics in that cuts in a lot of different directions. And on, on one hand, you've got folks who might be inclined to believe that black immigrants would come over and superimpose any number of stereotypes on them. They must not be hard workers. They must be coming here and not getting jobs. You also have folks who, ideology, who ideologically might suggest this is exactly the type of person we don't want. Wait, they're coming over and they're getting jobs and they're working hard. No, we, we want, you know, and, and so you can see those same statistics can be used in any number of, of ways depending on your ideology about how you, how you look at that. Um, and and so, so it's been, like I said, it's been an interesting moment as, as we suss this out because up until this, in fact, up until this moment in time, there's been very little um, conversation in our political dialogue about black immigrants. Um, so often we assume when we have these conversations, we're talking about immigration, legal, refugee, or otherwise, that we're talking about, um, you know, Latinos and Latinas. And so, um, so I, this has been an interesting moment as it relates to that. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> on immigration and the stuff that my good friend, a hope-to-be friend, Wes, just said, um, that all that is true, and I have been one of the most ardent advocates for both refugees and immigrants uh, going out of my way. I've been working on Haitian refugee issues uh, as long as I could breathe, and going there and back and forth and all the rest, and uh, working on African issues. In point of fact, politically, while we might huddle here on the East Coast, uh, huddled out on the West Coast in California, we might think that having given this factual description of the productivity and creativity and all the rest of it, that's the end of the story. Why politically doesn't that help us on the immigration issue a lot of times? And that's because some people who are in the country would say that that's all well and good. I mean, out there in flyover country that I go to a lot, 
uh, flyover of those places you fly over when you go to California. Uh, Trump land. Uh, yeah. They would say, well, that's all well and good, but what about me? You know, I don't have a job, or I've been laid off when I'm 55, and I don't, you know, they'll tell you that, the workers that I see in some of these places, especially when I'm out campaigning for people. Uh, and they, what you have to do in policy terms, and in terms of the kinds of values you express, this is my belief, you have to talk about both and when you discuss something, if you want to win a campaign. <laughs> you have to talk about, you know, this is great, what he just said, and we want to continue this, what he just said. Now, on the other hand, I know you don't have a job. Now, here's what I'm going to do for you. But to just leave the people out of the discussion when you're discussing immigration, who are, in fact, suffering themselves. I see some people nodding. Aren't you going to get you those votes out there in flyover country? Because the people who are suffering, they want to hear what you've got to say about what's going to happen to them. So what we have to learn, and it's not something I find pleasant either, because I'm, you know, I'm one of these literati from the East Coast, or whatever, the academic and so on. But I know that politically, and I'll just bring it home, if the Democratic Party wants to get the support of the white working class, all them people that they used to have, and the ones who are feeling deprived in all of these places, you have to talk about them while you talk about the benefits of it. It's even better if you talk about, you know, how many immigrants did you have in your family when you came, something. You've got to put some context. Do you see what I mean, folks? you got to put some context. Text without context is mere what? Pretext. Brother Howard Thurman used to say. And so I just wanted to add that as sort of a coda politically on what we're talking about. Well, thank you. And, and Jason, I wanted to piggyback off that because you are, you really look to issues that you don't want the government necessarily always in. The Democratic Party doesn't always have an answer. It's about the person, correct? Sure. <clears throat> yes, yes. Um, uh, on the immigration front, though, I, I think um, Dr. Barry and Wes did a very good job of laying out <clears throat> where different people are coming from. I think the president originally, he's been talking out of both sides of his mouth on this issue for a long time, but originally it was about um, illegal immigration. That was the vote. That's what we've got to stop. And he had a lot of sympathy from a lot of a lot of people. Oh, we, we need to know who's coming into our country. Uh, dangerous people could be uh, smuggling drugs in, smuggling uh, weapons of mass destruction in. We need to know who's coming in and out of our country. Borders mean something. Um, now we've morphed into a, we have too many legal immigrants, and um, they're stealing jobs and they're depressing wages, and we need to uh, crack down on that. Uh, an immigrant coming here to take a job means one fewer job for you and me. That is that uh, sort of zero-sum mentality that, that some uh, anti-immigrant folks bring the, to the discussion. Um, uh, and, and so I, I also think Dr. Barry's right. When you live in the East Coast, you live in very cosmopolitan areas, you see people who don't look like you with different backgrounds all the time, this is not typical of a lot of America. And a lot of these immigrants from Latin America um, you know, the fastest growing immigrant populations are in states like Arkansas and North Carolina and Iowa. And while they may still only make up five or six percent of the population, if that, um, it may have doubled or tripled in the past ten years. And it's new to them. And they're still trying to work it out. 
And Trump has been playing to these anxieties and fears. And I think, um, uh, unfortunately, what he's done now, though, is really poison the well in terms of what's really motivating him. Was it ever really the illegal status? Was it ever really the economic issue? What was it really? And that's what I think people are questioning now, even his allies on this issue, who for them it was one of those other things. But then now, wait, I don't want to back someone who's really only talking about this. So when you have someone like this, I mean, he's the president of the United States, but we also have Congress. But you know, from what I've understood, and, and panel tell me if I'm wrong, and audience tell me if I'm wrong, I believe it's about the people. Now, when you hear these things, I mean, back in the day, in the 50s and 60s, though, people would be leveraging and marching and doing something, strategizing, organizing. But today, I'm watching people on Twitter. I'm watching people on Twitter behind emojis. Um, I'm not reporting on too much because I'm not seeing that much out there. So when, when do we see the fact that it's about the people more so and, and what they feel? versus the president or Congress. Because I saw something the day after an inauguration that showed me that numbers and size matters. And Sean Spicer, God bless his heart, came to the podium with that ill-fitting suit screaming <laughs> about the numbers. And I think, am I right? It matters. What, what, what do you have to do? Um, uh, I, I think Twitter is fine. I mean, I even tweet sometimes myself. <laughs> Resistance tips, I call it. What's your handle, your Twitter uh, handle? I don't remember. And I know a lot of students, and students of mine get all their news off Twitter. I don't know how much news you can get off Twitter. But anyway, about, social media is great because, as you will see in the book that I'm publishing, when we did all those movements, and some of the UN, some of them, we didn't have social media. You know, we had to hand out flies and use mimeograph machines and do all kinds of stuff. How many of you marched in the 50s and 60s? I want a show of hands. And, and, and call All them. right. And we had to call people on the telephone and let the FBI monitor us on the telephone, have all those records of what we did and so on. Uh, but now, you know, you tweet. But some people still think that social media is a substitute for action. And it isn't. It's a way of communicating and a way of getting, gathering people together. But, and if you want the media to show you, you have to show up. That's right. You have to do something. And we forget that. And so whenever, wherever you're organizing or whatever you're doing, once you get your people together on the social media and all that, y'all got to go somewhere <laughs> and do something so that the media can cover you. They can't just cover that you did so many tweets. I mean, they can say that. But that's well, we all watch the president because every tweet is something. Right, it's spectacular. Right. And that's because he's president. And the other thing is that you have to disrupt the president is a disruptor, by the way. That's what he's doing. He's disrupting our whole lives. Uh, even if you try to ignore him, you can't. Uh, but in fact, when you are in a movement and when you're trying to make change, and you should be doing something besides just trying to elect candidates. I mean, you should organize around issues. I've always organized around issues. A policy I want to change. Something I want, I want to get sanctions against South Africa. Uh, I want to get jobs, uh, public service jobs for people in X community. Or uh, I want to increase the education budget by X percentage. Or I want 
ADA to be passed or whatever it is I want, I have always organized around specific issues and I have been persistent along with all my people who are all of us together. And I tell you, if you've not done that, you ought to try it because there's no greater high that you can get. It's better than marijuana or <laughs> cognac or whatever it is. Being with all right now, all right now. Uh, sleeping on the floor, <laughs> going to jail, and doing what Bud did. I, when I'm in jail, I teach the people in the jails, you know. Uh, I see your high. I see it. She's <laughs> just talking about it. But you have to do something in order to be covered, okay? This is what I'm talking about, wisdom on the stage. It's just amazing. Bishop Jakes, when Dr. King organized, galvanized, only 4% of black churches supported him. Yep. Only four, say it again, say yep loud. Yep. yep. Only 4% of black churches supported him. That was 50, 60 years ago. Talk to me about the, the church. I know, I know, as it relates to, and social change, that's right, in 2018. You know, I sit in a very unique position. I was sitting here thinking to myself because I was raised in West Virginia, so I'm one of those flyover states. I grew up in one of those <laughs> states you flew over on your way to L.A. I grew up in West Virginia. Uh, I have, uh, my mother's from Alabama and from Mississippi, so I have a really deep and abiding understanding of, of, of why uh, civil rights was important. Uh, she was raised with Coretta Scott, and so I grew up listening to that every day of my life. I have a really good feel and a sense of who I am as, as it relates to ethnicity. But because I'm a faith leader, I also have a lot of friends who are right-wing conservative who run the television stations and the radio stations and write the books who have uh, different ideas from my own and different ideas from my congregation. And I listen, to, I listen to a lot of people talking about a lot of things, and, and it occurs to me those flyover states, those uh, uh, Rust Belt states, as they were, really are, are complaining about the same things that people in the inner city are complaining about. One, people are not being heard. And out of that frustration, they need somebody to blame. And, and so it's easy to say the reason I'm in trouble is because of this group or that group is coming in when in reality that is not the problem. And so we demonize individuals as opposed to issues. And it's the issues that I think we really need to come together on in order to be able to solve because both groups are saying there are no jobs, there are poor opportunities, there's an increase of drugs, crime violence and something needs to change in America. Now we totally disagree about what that is that needs to change, but we all know that something needs to change. And I find it quite ironic that many of the people who voted for President Obama are the same people who voted for President uh, Trump. I don't understand that, but 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 that yeah, yeah, the I word think, was changed. I think, change. I think that is precisely what I'm getting at. President Obama's Democrat, President Trump was Republican. Uh, I won't even point out all the obvious differences between the two leaders. We could be here all day. I could make a good sermon out of that. Uh, be that as it may, there, there is one thing that both of them promised, and that was change. And I think that I'm concerned as we are here again 
at the crossroads of opportunity and being staggered and sometimes distracted by individuals. Uh, we had eight years of a Democratic leadership with Republicans screaming about health care and their disagreement about Obamacare, and then when they got the wheel, did not have a plan to take over. It all, and now we are here again complaining about Trump, but I'm not sure that Democrats are developing a plan for leadership. <laughs> and, and what bothers me about it, it reminds me of a dog running down the street chasing a car never thinking, I can't drive if I catch it. <laughs> yeah, what happens when I do get the wheel? Do I have a plan? Do I have a strategy? <laughs> you, know, you know, so the dog just chases the car. I mean, he's running as fast as he can, never thinking, I can't drive. And I'm wondering today, are we chasing a car without a strategy to drive? I think what America really wants to hear from anybody, they don't even care what you call yourself. And that's obvious by the trends in voting. The Republican Party that we see today is not the Republican Party that we saw up under George Bush. And we don't really have adequate words to describe us as people move from, from one state into the other, from one class into the other. You, you, the predictable uh, words that we use to describe uh, ideologies and concepts are no longer applicable. Many, many Republicans don't recognize the Republican Party they find themselves in now. And same thing is true with Democrats. So, so we're, we're at a quagmire here that I think is quite interesting. And, and I, I think what, what we've been talking about is spot on when we really start dealing with issues and policies as opposed to individuals and politics. I think that if we get down to the issues that in fact we have a country that has stopped manufacturing stop producing, one because of technology and one because we have shipped a lot of the jobs away. If the jobs do come back, they're not the jobs that left. And we have a class of people who could not uh, ascend into the upper echelon of society by virtue of failing education systems, who fell into the quagmire who were not originally poor, but are first generation uh, poor people and shocked to find themselves with the same sociological ills that are going on in the inner city. The good part about it is, is if those same trends are true in the Rust Belt states that we're seeing in the inner city, maybe we will not allow the blackness of the inner city to stop us from solving the problems so that people of all colors can have a better life. Does the church play a role though? That's Does the church, wait, let me get that. And then you, you, wait, 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 let me get that. Let me get that, because right, that, that was the question. Hold on. Does the church, yeah, does the church Does the church play a role? I think, yes, the church does play a role, but the church is not monolithic. This this notion of the church suggests that we, yeah, yeah what is that? The church, what does that mean? What, we sing what, Amazing Grace. Yeah, yeah, what does that mean? Read I just, scripture. I just, I, I just left Ghana, I just left Ghana, and I was at the slave castles where they were singing Amazing and grace as they were waiting on the slaves to depart. So what does it mean when we say church? What does it mean when we say church and what does that role mean in the 21st century? Now, every church is different. Our church has taken on, uh, we, we have not done any marches. What we have done is taken on criminal justice. What we have done is fought for reform and what we have done is to take 10,000 formerly incarcerated inmates through an intensive training program to reduce the rate of recidivism and open up job opportunities so that they can wow, have great. a better life, so that they can move forward, so that they can get things done. 
The other component I want to quickly say is I think that the church can be strategic. I think the church, along with elected officials, is important, and that's an age-old push and pull we've been having a long time. But what we have left out of the conversation is uh, companies, industries, CEOs. And I think that that is a very needed leg of support that has to be included in this conversation. Because if we do not include them in the conversation, they are the ones that do the hiring. They are the ones who do the lobbying and they are the ones who really control the politicians. And we have to develop a consortium that stops us from pointing from one to the other. The notion that it's popular amongst conservative people, that the government shouldn't take any care of poor people, the church should, just doesn't add up. If you took all of the income of all of the churches and put it all together, we would all be bankrupt in a month trying to take care of the prescriptions, the health care needs, and feeding and clothing people. It just doesn't work. And then secondly, it's not right, because why would you take my taxes and then not provide some services when I actually need them? I'm not, you understand what I'm saying? So while the church works with 10%, of a few people's income, and the TV government has got almost 40% of everybody's income, I don't think we ought to let them off the hook quite that easy. I'm not lobbying for people to live off of the government. Please hear me good. I am not saying that. But this notion whereby we give the government a pass and say that the church is going to do it, if you take a calculator and you put it to work, you will find out that will not work. We can play a part. We need to do a part. We can do a part. We do do a part. But we cannot assume the weight of the level of poverty we have in this country and effectively solve the problem. We just, it just wow. doesn't add up with numbers. Well, it's also true that the church, Bishop, uh, the church has a moral responsibility to do something, aside from what the taxpayers, religious people who are truly religious, whatever their religious faith happens to be, they know that they have a moral responsibility to be concerned about the least of these in our society. And that whatever the government does, doesn't do, and we should pressure the government to use our tax monies the way we want them to be used. But I myself, I believe, I believe I have a moral responsibility to care for the least of these to the extent that I can. And I think that every church, to be a church and to be a religion, the major religions that I know about, there is a concern and caring about doing what you can. Absolutely. And also inspiring people to behave, if you're a Christian, in a Christ-like manner, if you're not a Christian, in a God-like manner, whatever manner, whatever religion you have, to behave in a way that expresses your empathy for the poor and your concern about them. So, of course, you couldn't take care Humanity. of all the poor people in the world. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're talking about... I get God. what you're Biden saying. was a human rights man. Let, let me respond to that part of it, because my mind is not as big as yours, and I can't remember that long. Let me, let me get this little part. Okay? I absolutely agree with you. I have absolutely no issue with it at all. But for the sake of clarity, what you define as moral obligation, morality is based on what you are being taught. In some sectors, morality seems to be around bedroom issues exclusively. In other, in other sects, so consequently, they think that they're being moral. They think that they're being moral <clears throat> to fight for the issues that they have been taught. In other circles, they exclude those issues altogether and focus primarily on taking care of the poor, and that's how they define morality. 
This is why when you start talking about religious institutions and the freedom thereof, you have to do it to understand the fact, with the, within the prism of the fact that we're not monolithic. So when, we sit, when all faith leaders sit down together, we don't agree any better than Congress. Right. <laughs> I hate That's to tell bad. you that. That's very and, bad. And while there have always been voices who said that we should have a moral obligation to take care of the poor, and everybody would say amen across the board, when it comes to actually really taking action and getting things done, that is not what every congregation hears on Sunday morning. And what we are seeing, and it is obvious by the right-wing support that exists for this current administration, that many, many institutions justify the ends uh, regardless of the means. And that's why Martin Luther King, since it's his day, was kicked out of the Baptist Convention, and why the progressive pastors started the Progressive Baptist Convention, because they divided on the question of whether we have a moral obligation to be concerned about the rights of people who are discriminated against and poor people so, as our major focus. And they kicked them out because they were activists on this question. Go back and read your history. Yeah. And they had to start the Progressive Baptist Organization just on that issue. Okay, I was trying to give you your mic. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, I want so, people so to hear. When you, when you talk about the progressives and you start talking about National Baptists, those are both black organizations. What we need is for this issue to, to, to leak beyond black churches. And that's where, and that's where. <laughs> this has, no, this has to be, if the church has a role to play, it can't, that role can't stop by the color of skin. Okay, and, and the reason we are having this problem is that the church is still in honor of Dr. King as divided at 11 o'clock as it was in 1960. So when you say the church, it depends on what room you say it in, what image erupts from it. Do, okay. you, do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. That's just the facts. That's the way it is. All right, guys. Are you enjoying this discussion? Are you hashtagging for the Twitter, Race in America? Keep on doing it. Now I want to bring in <laughs> Wes and Jason. Let them keep going. No, no. <laughs> No, but but no, 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 no. But but the, you have, I mean, you have Wes, who, who both both Jason and Wes understand the issues in the black community. But uh, Jason feels that the onus should not be on on government to really deal with the ills. The African, let's just go with the African American community. The African American community still has the highest numbers of negatives in almost every category in this nation in 2018. Everything that's bad, we got more. Yes. So, 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 where does the onus like <laughs> Wes and Jason? I mean, you know, whichever one wants to go first, but I want both of you to answer. Where's the onus for this? I mean, you know, some people fall through the cracks and just can't get out. Oh, sure, sure. I, I, I think the, I draw my conclusion based on the government's poor track record. I mean, look at where we are, since. The Great Society program since this war on poverty started. How much improvement have we seen? What is the track record here? And and what's working? What's not working? Are, 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 we, are we just doubling down? Campaign. Are we just on the same strategies or do we need to try something new? Um, we are honoring King today and one of the things I always think about on this day is uh, the progress that blacks are making uh, notwithstanding the rampant uh, open, uh, deadly racism that existed in society. Um, 
Dr. Barry talked about the what would King do question. Um, I think he would be completely unfazed by Donald Trump. <laughs> I think he would, he would say, you know, I had to deal with that. I had to deal with my bull Connors. I had to deal with people with these attitudes. And frankly, I, I think when I see Trump, more of a indifference at the base of what he's doing, um, more so than animosity. Um, I see a man who uh, has real, n no real interest in uniting the country. Um, I don't think he sees any plus in that uh, for whatever he's trying to do. Uh, and so he is just completely indifferent and says these things out of indifference more than, than anything else. Um, I don't know that there's a grand strategy there. So if, wait a minute. If there so is, I can't, I can't okay, detect so it. I'm going to challenge you on that indifference okay. piece. And I'm just going to throw it And I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it's not. But the NAACP, you say indifference, but there's a track record of indifference or yes. things said that do not sit well with certain communities. The NAACP says, and I want you all to write this down, the definition of a racist. This is from the nation's oldest civil rights organization. The definition of a racist is racial prejudice and power combined, or the intersection of both. Think about it, when racial prejudice and power intersect. So Sure, and, and that's why I get back to King and what he was able to accomplish and in, in what blacks were accomplishing uh, in the 40s, in the 50s. If you look at the metrics from uh, black-white differences in, in home ownership, in income, in poverty, in educational attainment, these were narrowing during this period of open and rampant racism in this country. Um, his attitude seemed to be that you know, the racism is gonna be the constant. We can't let that stop us. We have to achieve what we need to achieve, notwithstanding the racism. I, I once wrote a, a column a few years ago quoting King and something he said to a black congregation in St. Louis, and this would have been in the late 50s, I believe, and he said something to the effect of, uh, and this gets a little bit into the morality of the church and the thinking back then, uh, he said something to this black congregation like, we are 10% of the population in St. Louis but responsible for 58% of the crimes. We need to do something about that. We need to do something about our morality. We can't keep blaming the white man. There are problems in the white world, but there are problems in the black world, too. Uh, you know, we, have to, we have to change the way we think and feel about these subjects. And after I used the quote, um, some people wrote into the Wall Street Journal accusing me of making it up. And uh, what struck me about this was two things. One, in this day and age of Google, you can easily find the source <laughs> of any quote, and this one happens to come from a, um, a 1961 profile of King in Harper's Magazine, written by James Baldwin, of, of all people. Um, but the second thing that struck me is that uh, we now have a generation of people who uh, find it very hard to believe that civil rights leaders used to speak this way. And what King said was not uncommon for the period. I mean, Malcolm X could have said that. Uh, Thurgood Marshall could have said that. Um, people, even people behind the scenes, Bayard Rustin could have said that. And they did say things like this quite regularly. And, uh, but today, it didn't sound right. <coughs> Should you 
Jason, they don't they don't talk like that. Jason, Jason, what you oh. just said, which is true, and I read your piece when you first did it. What you just said is not an answer to the question about what government does or what anybody else does. You can be concerned about crime in the community, <coughs> and you can talk about it, and we all talk about it. No, no, what, I, what I was speaking to... You about crime, but that doesn't mean that you don't no, understand no. that there's structural discrimination. No, the, I, what I'm talking about is that they're, they're not, they're all the piece. That, that, that you had a time when I think that King thought that there was a role <coughs> for the government to play oh, okay. in equal treatment under the law and so forth, and that was what he was fighting for. Mm -hmm. But there was also a role for the community to play. Yeah, so and, and, there was, and there was and there was a everyone plays a part. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There was a twofold I mean, I've effort. Made that Thanks. A yeah. times. All right. Uh, so we all believe that, don't we? Yes, we do. Okay. All right, Wes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Wes. <laughs> I love Dr. Barry. Go ahead. <laughs> Wes. You know, where's the onus? Where does the onus? Who, who, who? I mean, we're having this discussion here. You know, th there's still the highest numbers of negatives in every category for Black America, and we're trying to figure out who who takes responsibility for it. Well, and I, and I think that there are. You know, I think some of the difficulty of this conversation sometimes. You know, for for me as a as a journalist, as a reporter, right, primarily focused on accountability reporting. Um, there is it's relatively futile. Um, and also, in fact, relatively impossible for me to show up in a community and conclude exactly who in this community I need to hold accountable and how do I go about doing that. Um, I, I, can, I can go to a neighborhood in Baltimore and interview a bunch of people and talk to a bunch of folks. Uh, the, function by, by the, by the function of the tool that I am equipped with, um, I am best equipped to hold power, government, structure, organization, accountable for what it is and is not doing, right? That doesn't erase a conversation happening in communities. And also, frankly, you know, I think we have to be clear that in most, most communities, these exact conversations are happening. Um, they're, they're, that that you're going to be hard-pressed to find people who believe the black community has a role to play in this, who, who think so more strongly than black people. Um, <laughs> the, the, um, the, uh, in fact, I, I can't think of anyone who thinks my problems are more my fault than my father does, right? You know, like, <laughs> you know, like, so, <laughs> and, and his mother and father being that playing that role for him, right? Mm -hmm. The, the, and, th and, those and I think sometimes that gets lost from this conversation is that I think the black community is as hard on itself as anyone is. Um, the, uh, but, but I do think there's a question, and, and there's a question about what is the role of government. I do think it's important to assess and hold to account uh, government programs that have been put in place, ask real questions about their effectiveness, and also to point out their failures when they have failed. I think that has to be partnered with a true analysis of to what extent have we fully in good faith attempted to solve some of these problems or have not. Um, you, you know, if, the, if my pipes are leaking, um, and the duct tape doesn't work, I don't say, well, I guess I can't fix the pipes. <laughs> I figure out, <laughs> then maybe I should call the plumber, right? You, you, you keep thinking about additional solutions. Um, you don't then conclude, well, fixing the pipes isn't the, isn't the way to do this, right? The, but, but I think that beyond that, the, you know, and I think King's interesting here because he gets evoked um, in a lot of different ways. Um, he, he, he's, oft, he, he's very often evoked in, in ways that I think can kind of strip him 
of the, in many ways, raw and radical beliefs that he held for his time and even for this moment. You know, doc, Dr. King was, was on record very clearly saying he believed the government needed to pay reparations to black Americans. He, well, among his last campaigns, was in Chicago. Clap dealing if you with, want to. You know, uh, it's among, only a few people clap. That's interesting. Go ahead. You know, uh, among his among his last campaigns was was dealing with uh, housing redlining in Chicago, right? That was, and I think that, and so I think that we. Um, you know, and these are conversations we are still having in terms of what is the government's role, one, to address these types of systemic, just because black people could vote and they stopped and were no longer being lynched every day, it was more of a rare occasion, it did not mean that there were not other societal structural inequalities that perpetuated the inequalities we still see. My former colleagues at the Boston Globe did a series earlier this year about race in Boston. And one of the lines that struck, stuck out to me was the, or one of the findings that stuck out to me, was that in the city of Boston, the net worth of the average white family is over $200,000. The net worth of the average black family in the city of Boston is $8. No. Eight. Dollars? Eight. Like eight. Like seven, then eight. Correct. <laughs> like if you, have a if you have a $10 bill, take $2 away. The, now, now, do employment rates factor into that? Certainly. Does education factor into that? Certainly. Um, but but thing about wealth is wealth is accumulated over time, right? It, it's that inequalities facing my grandparents then set my my father and his siblings back a step in terms of a competition, which then set me back a step in terms of a competition. And that's not to say that there can't be things, and the, and the response to that can't be, well, but Oprah's rich, and so clearly there aren't any problems, right? <laughs> there will always be people who overcome and outpace the average within a group. Uh, but, but I think that, so I think that's something we've got to focus on as well. When you look at things like wealth accumulated over time, you see folks who are in, and again, you can't divorce that from housing and real estate policy. That, that for generations of Americans, their equity and their net worth came from their houses, That's their right. homes. Um, and, and when you have, and, and that is where it also, you know, I think that sometimes in conversations about race, we want to litigate people's, we, we, one, we can become a little legalistic about, all right, is this person technically a racist? Are they not? Is this, you know, and I, and I there's some futility in that conversation. But, but beyond that, I think we want to, sometimes we want to litigate or we want to set aside uh, the way that individual attitudes of people have real life policy and, and reality impacts, right? The one, one study that's really interesting looks at what individuals believe a diverse neighborhood is. And black Americans believe that if they live in a in a community where they make up 40% of the neighborhood, maybe 50%, that that can be relatively diverse, right? The black Americans are used to operating in spaces where they are in some relative uh, minority um, and are fine with that. The white Americans, that once their neighborhood becomes, once there are three in 10 of the people in the neighborhood are black, they're gone. They gotta go. They're gone. It, you see, what you see, and you see, and this cuts across education. Uh, you see, you see the resources that get sucked out of school systems uh, as they begin to diversify, and as neighborhoods begin to diversify. You see it being sucked out of of neighborhoods in, ter in terms of who is living in those neighborhoods, I and that deprives people of the resources that come with these communities. When you have a community that begins to diversify, and again, beginning to diversify meaning two black people live on your block, not just one. 
and now your ta your tax pace is that because <laughs> because the white Americans with 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 accumulated wealth with networks are moving a suburb further out or two suburbs further out. You you, you, you what you're seeing is black Americans being denied the the collective and communal uh, benefits of living in these neighborhoods the way that their white peers would have been previously. Wow. And let me ju just jump in for a second yes. because I think that that feeling and that attitude is really at the bottom of what we're talking about when we're talking about immigration. Because the reality is America is waxing brown. And I think that scares a lot of people to death. <laughs> but there's no place left to move. <laughs> so either we have to learn how to get along with people who are different than us and live in a world where we don't, where no particular group enjoys the privileges that comes from being the majority and we really have to have a shared democracy or we have to fight to keep people out because too many yeah. brown and black people are moving into the neighborhood we call America. Yeah. And I think at the bottom of it all is a deep hidden fear of the loss of control. Yeah. Well, that's always, yeah. but that's the, that's the history of the country, right? I mean, the, but the we fear weren't of, always waxing brown. <laughs> no, but that, but the fear the of fear the unknown. The fear was there. Yeah, I get ben, it. Ben, ben, Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin was complaining about too many Germans moving into Pennsylvania in the 1750s. <laughs> well, let me say and, this, and and, and 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 that is just something, and and it's interesting. Trump's choice of country was very interesting, in what he wanted, where he preferred people to come. Because if you go back to the debates of the early 1900s with the Madison Grants of the world who had divided, divided the world into the Nordic people, which he considered the Scandinavian countries, and, and Southern people, or Mediterranean people. So to him, you know, everyone from Southern Italy, Spaniards, were all a different race of people. The Irish were a different race of people. And when they came over to this country, you look at the political cartoons written back, uh, drawn back in the turn of the 20th century, depicting Irish people as looking like apes and so forth. Uh, mm. This has been the, 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 the history of America. And you're right, this latest, the, the latest group of immigrants to get it are typically the Hispanics because they're the biggest wave right now. Yeah. But, but they're not different. Uh, they're just newer. But let me give you guys some fact. We are now seeing the majority of babies born are minority in this country. The shift is happening. Michael Steele, former head of the Republican National Committee, told me, and this is his feeling, he said, this administration has an issue with the browning of this nation. He says this immigration piece is trying to control the browning of the nation. That's what I'm saying. So that's 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 what Michael Steele said, the former head of the RNC. You can go ask him, Google it. Um, <laughs> now this is. It, remember something else, and Michael Steele should too. Well, wait a minute. Before you do you that, before you, I want yeah. you to hold that for a minute. This is our favorite part of the show. We're going to let you ask questions. Oh, Come to the mic, and now you can talk. Yes. And hashtag race in America. Come to the mic. Civil discussion. And don't let me cut you off if um, you get out of, if, if we go in a veer in a, another direction. Civil discussion on this peaceful MLK Day 2018. Are you enjoying this? Yeah. One of the great things about politics and prose, the diverse crowd. And I just thank you all so much for sitting and listening and sharing. I want to hear what you have to say. Now, yes, Dr. Barry. All I was going to say is we should remember, and Michael Steele should remember, that with the browning of America, whatever color America's going to come, because you get a majority in the country of people of color, that doesn't mean that they will have the power. 
Ask the South Africans. Right. That's true. That's a very good point. That's amazing. Do you see why we have this amazing panel up here today? And with our first question from a friend who comes to all of these sessions. Yes, yes, I, ha yes I have been to all of them. And again, thank you. Uh, and I'm going to behave, Lissa and Brad. Dr. Berry, I want you to repeat about your book because when we were last here for the fourth session, you said you pretty much decided never to write another book, but you've been you felt the need as we were talking to you and pleading with you to write about resistance. Is that what you are bringing out? I hope so. Right. I had I planned to never write another book. It's too much trouble. I've written too many books, uh, and I said I probably don't even have any ideas. And uh, here when I was here for this. I inspired you? We uh, did. Not you. But I, it, look, <laughs> you too, you too. And, it was my and, session. You too. And I went away and thought about it. And then my editors called me up and said, you've got to write a book about the history of resistance because you know what works and what doesn't. And it has to be the movements you have been in, which I've been in everything from the Vietnam War, anti-Vietnam. I was a reporter in Vietnam one summer when I was in college. Uh, lied my way into Vietnam. But anyway, uh, the uh, Free South African Movement, which hasn't been written about in the way that it should be written about, and all the protests against Reagan and all that stuff, they said, you got to write about that. And I said, I'm not writing about it. And then I asked all my friends, some of whom are here, and everybody said, write it. And so I said, I don't even know enough to write it. And I sat down and I started writing it, and it worked. And I finished it, and it's called History. Very good, because you are an excellent teacher. Talk about it. Yes. You guys should come out, and we'll talk about it. Yes. History teaches us to resist next month here at Politics and Prose. Thank you. I have one question we for Bishop Jake. Okay. No, I do. I must, I must say this, because okay. I am... No, I am a Christian, and I pray daily. <laughs> and I also was a volunteer at Resurrection City in the Poor People's Campaign okay. 50 years ago, okay, right. and continue to do that kind of work. Um, race matters. Words do matter. And I say this for all of the panel. And if one more individual, I think I'm going to puke, makes excuses for the President of the United States and what comes out of his mouth, I am sick of it. Uh, you know, the time has come to say something, to speak out about it, and to do something about it. And when the, the leadership of the right, I'm talking about the president of Liberty University, and you know who all of these people are, when they rise to defend him again and again and again, we know the history, as you said, of this country. Uh, if we go back to uh, the end of slavery and Reconstruction and Jim Crow, it all is repeating itself. We love do you, the we question. Let that, the question yeah. yeah, do we let that happen again, or do we stand, do we fight, do we resist, do we do something? I mean, all of us. Thank are you. Are you asking me? Yes. yes. Okay. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> we all are praying. Yeah, Thank yeah, yeah. you. know, we question. all are Thank praying, you. but beyond the praying. Thank you for the question. Thanks. Go on, Bishop James. Yeah, uh, I think that when you disagree with something, you absolutely need to speak out. Uh, I think that many times religious leaders live in a false reality. And if you don't make them aware that you disagree with their support going to that extreme, or whether it's extreme right or left, uh, then, then people never challenge their own ideas. Unfortunately, we live in, 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 a, we live in a society that allows us to live in a vacuum and a chosen blindness. 
so that we only interact with people who think like us, act like us, and dress like us. And it gives us the luxury of willful blindness on any issue. Social media does create a, a platform through which other people can have access to, to comment. And, but in short, you're, to answer your question, I think you absolutely should speak out when there's something you don't agree with. That's what being an American is all about. The question then becomes, does your speaking out change their position? And I'm doubtful because in those circles, uh, many, many conservative people hold their nose when it comes to uh, Donald Trump. However, they are feeling as though that as long as they get the right appointment on the Supreme Court justice and as long as it moves their agenda along, then the ends justifies the means, which is what I meant when I said that. Okay, so there, it's not that it, there is not contention, it's not that there's not disputing, and it's not that there's not disagreement, but the justification, both with uh, very conservative religious people as well as amongst some CEOs who were fighting for lower business taxes, it wasn't that they had agreed with his uh, egregious remarks, but it was in fact that in order, as long as I get what I want out of it, then I'll put up with what I don't want. That seems to be the pervasive attitude that has caused America to enter into such a quagmire that we're in right now. We're doing the very thing that we teach our children not to do that you don't get up by any means necessary, that you do have a certain level of integrity and certain lines you do not cross, even if you agree with somebody on certain issues that you call them out when they're wrong. That silence that you're talking about is indicative of the fact that we have an increasing amount of people in this country who feel like as long as you get done what I want done, I'll look the other way because that other part doesn't affect me. And Thank that's unfortunate. Thank you so as much. As Frederick Thank Douglass you. said, power gives up nothing without resistance, without a fight and without demand. Thank you. Yes, next please. Thank you. Um, I'm a come close. Oh, can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Uh, when Trump won the election, I took to my bed for two weeks. <laughs> but, but, but you're out now. That's good. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Had to. But no matter how I feel about Trump, how I feel is not going to get rid of Trump. Um, and we, even in this discussion, we focus so much on Trump and on what's happening in Washington because that's where we are, but the action is not here. Uh, people at the grassroots are kicking butt. I mean, those, those two kids in um, Alabama who went to counties that the DNC hadn't heard of and put 30 counties, those are the people that are going to win this. And I'm just, I just like you to respond to that. It was, to me, the role of government is policy and getting it passed. But I, I don't see how we're going to get rid of Trump without supporting people at the grassroots. So th like we said, that goes, back to that goes back to the onus issue. She's saying the onus, a lot of this is grassroots, the grassroots are going to take control and change, make the and change. My question to also, okay, she was asking me. Oh, she was asking yeah. you, okay. You, you ought to also, I think you're just right, that, that's Emily Tynes, who was the uh, communications director of the National ACLU for years, a wonderful communications specialist uh, and a good sister. But anyway, <laughs> the, the thing I wanted to say about it is she's right, and it's one of the reasons why I have started financially supporting 
grassroots local organizations all over the country instead of just supporting national organizations. When I go out and I find some people, I found some people today down in Florida in a community that are doing some good work. I like to give them some help and support, some props. And they go out and they work all the time on issues. They work on candidates, but they don't, and they want to get the right local candidates. And they know about the state legislature and the this and the that. But it's the grassroots folk. That's where it happened. The Democratic Party, for example, lost out at the grassroots. That's why the party is so decimated uh, in all of those offices. You've got to work at the grassroots and also work on policy. I was thinking when Bishop Jakes was talking about issues or policy or whatever you said, I was thinking about the Democrats not having any policy or whatever. I was thinking to myself, I hadn't thought about that. For example, when the Republicans came out with their tax bill, I kept thinking, well, where's the Democrats' tax bill? What is that tax bill? They introduced the tax bill? Maybe I could get behind that, whatever it is. I found out they didn't have one. Uh, but that tax bill was to object to different things that were in the Republican tax bill and to say that the tax is all right now, we don't need to change it. Well, you have to change it. If people feel that there should be change in the air, when there's a big policy thing, you ought to propose something that's your thing that you think we ought to do. I don't know what the tax, they, I mean, they, the they said, well, just go against whatever. But in any kind of sport, you know, you have to have offense and defense. You can't just, you know, defend against and attack what somebody else is doing. So organizing around issues, letting the grassroots uh, flower, and supporting people at the grassroots, not only on the, uh, on the big political policy issues, but on issues like criminal justice reform, there are all these groups out here, helping uh, poor women who are uh, drug addicted and have children and who have been in the criminal justice system and who are coming out. There are all kinds of organizations all around the country in these towns and cities. I know some in New Orleans and in Savannah and in little towns out in uh, Arkansas and so on who are doing this. Find those people, help them. The grassroots is where the, where the power is and where the opportunity is. Yes, sir. So uh, I have a question uh, for Bishop uh, T.D. Jakes to follow up on what April was asking about the role that the black community serves in this movement that we're seeing right now. Sure. And I'm from a very Baptist community in Arkansas, and I would argue that a lot of the problems that I have with the administration, I also saw growing up in the black church as well, not, having women the same, have, not seeing women that have the same opportunities to be pastors or assistant preachers in churches. When we talk about that in relation to how the president constantly has white men, constantly have opportunities to be judges and secretaries. When we talk about sexuality and not allowing the LGBTQ community uh, that same representation in the church, and the problems that we have the president not allowing transgender people in the military. And so I'm wondering with these, these socially conservative values that are like, predicated on exclusion to some extent, like, do, what role do you think that the black community and the black church can serve to make sure that we aren't perpetuating those as well? Thank well, you. Let, let me respond. There are there may be similarities, but there's one distinct difference. Uh, I don't have to go to your church, mm -hmm. but I have to live in your country. And when it comes to public policy, it has a different tenor to it. It has to protect our rights to disagree, to have our own preferences, our own ideologies, because we are Americans, and it has to be. Um, it has to design itself in such a way that it is inclusive of all people. 
when it comes to church and church today in the 21st century, you can log online and get you a license in 10 minutes and start a church and develop an ideology and call it a doctrine. Mm. And there is no prevailing voice to control what you teach or preach as a leader. So whatever you and I agree that the church needs to move forward on, mm. he can start one tomorrow and go the other way and I have no power over him. Right, but one point in opposition I would say is that I wouldn't necessarily say that the church, some some communities out the south are mutually exclusive from what happens outside the church. What we learn inside the church is what your teachers telling you at school as well. And so I'm wondering, do you think there's any responsibility for the church to make sure that people in the community can feel, feel welcome, even if they aren't going to that same church? Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I get your point, and I think it varies from church to church. Ought to be, yes, reality is, uh, there's gonna be differences of opinions based on doctrine and theology. Thank you. Okay, we have a lot of people. I want to get to every last one. Let's make the questions quick and succinct, uh, and the answers shorter. No opinion. <laughs> just give me your question. I don't want to be Sarah Huckabee Sanders giving you that eye. <laughs> I don't want to tell you stop shaking your head, okay? Thank you. Stop shaking your head. But he's gone, God bless. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I'd yes, just like to yes, know the panel's um, thoughts on democratic socialism. I think Dr. King, at his essence, was probably a socialist. So what's the panel's thoughts? What's the panel's uh, uh, thoughts about democratic socialism? Correct. Yes. What? Who would like to take that? What Dr. King said about it. What, what Dr. King said about it. You're always making me put, what <laughs> I'll be short. What Dr. King said about it was that unregulated capitalism was evil, I don't wish you went, and that uh, he was opposed to unregulated capitalism, that it had to be regulated in the, common, in the interest of the common good, and that socialism without any role for the individual would also be bad, and he would begin against that. And what was needed was a combination of regulated capitalism and socialism. That's what he said. Yes, ma'am. I am a black immigrant from Cameroon, and I'm here to represent exactly what they said, that I came here with one small suitcase 17 years ago, walked myself through school, and I do have a job as a director now in, a, in an NGO here in the city. What I want to say on behalf of all the black immigrant, African, is that we should stay vigilant and think about what was said and take it beyond the racial tension. Because America, in my opinion, has become in money we trust. If you think about what was said, it was about if you come from a rich country, somehow you are able to contribute. But we are here for Martin Luther King today. It's about the content of your character and what you're about to, you are able to do with yourself. And Bishop, what do we do to reclaim the soul of America? That's why I came here. Thank you. Thank you wow. so much. <laughs> In money we trust. I, I, like I, that too. I really uh, agree with what you said. I, I don't. Uh, proposed to know what was in the mind of the person who made the statement they were talking about. But I do think that it, there is more involved in it than just black and white. 
I do think it's about money and the attitude about respecting money and not respecting people who don't. And I do think that there is an economic component to the conversation that has gotten swallowed up by race. I think that you're spot on in the fact that most people, extremely wealthy people, have a tendency to respect other extremely wealthy people. And I think that, that conversation and the way that it was phrased is a reflection of the disrespect and disregard for other forms of wealth that exist outside of money. And, and one of the things, after my many uh, trips back and forth to Africa, and I just came back from a tour with five countries, I've come to develop a deep appreciation for other types of wealth and other types of culture and other types of things that are regarded in other countries that exceed beyond, not just Africa, but around the world that exceed beyond the way America is going. I do think that we have become so consumed that we trust more in finances than we do in anything else. I don't know how to fix that. I'm holding down my corner as best I can. But I think it is, it really goes down seriously to the core of how we raise our children. Because values, while they are espoused across the pulpit and are important, the pulpit only reaches a certain demographic. Values begin in the house with how you raise your children. And what you teach them is really important. And that's how we change it. Every time, every mother, every father who has a child teaching them what matters and what's really important. Thank you for Thank being you. so bold and coming to the mic. We needed to hear from you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi, everyone. So in three months when we all celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. King, 50 years after he died, I'm wondering what your hopes are. Uh, what, what are some important parts of his story and his message that you hope to see emphasized and celebrated? And conversely, what are some pitfalls about the way his story and message might be used and perhaps oversimplified at times that you think are important to avoid? You know, it was interesting earlier today, there was an op-ed um, posted by a website and the headline was something along the lines of, uh, don't politicize uh, MLK, his, his life was about unity. Um, and and, it, and it's and I think sometimes there's a temptation um, because he's someone who has now been claimed by everyone um, to forget that MLK was less popular than Donald Trump. Um, that he was never involved in a campaign or a series of protests that were ever popular in the United States of America. Um, if it was up to a popular vote, there would have been no Montgomery boy bu uh, bus boycotts. There would have been no uh, sit-ins at the counters that the March on Washington would have been called off. In fact, that's what the administration wanted to have happen. Um, the, that there would have been no Civil Rights Act or Voting Rights Act. That, right, the, that the causes that Martin Luther King fought for were wildly unpopular. Um, with the American populace, um, and that and and that they had to be earned with blood, sweat, and tears uh, in in real ways. I, I think that we like to believe sometimes in a cartoon character version of Martin Luther King that did not exist and was not who he was or what he was. I, I think that I, I mean the the common attack on him at the time was that he was a communist, right? The yeah. the, um, the the when we look at what he believed in terms of foreign policy, in terms of labor. Um, you, you know, Martin Luther King could 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 actually probably be described as a maybe communist labor organizer, um, and many of the people who who now claim and and some might argue co-opt his legacy and name and words, um, would this is the type of person they would be denouncing in our contemporary politics, right? And, and so I, I think it is important to remember that. I, I think beyond that, as I noted earlier, I, I think that there are contemporary conversations we are having. Um, that um, 
where there are you don't have to squint your eyes very much to see uh, where uh, someone like MLK might stand on some of these things. And I think that when people attempt to dress themselves in his name and his likeness, um, at times when they're in contradiction, to, you know, it, it's, it's interesting. You think about um, the firestorm around professional athletes peacefully protesting. Um, and, and, and yet many of the same people very upset by that. Um, today we're posting quotes from Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, <laughs> The, um, the, you, you look at many of the people who are very upset about, um, about disruptive protests, whether it be Black Lives Matter shutting down a highway in a city or, or, or raising their voice during a play. Um, and, and many of the people who are very upset by that, or today we're posting uh, MLK quotes and clearly have not read a letter, letter from Birmingham jail, which, which argues very specifically for disruptive protests that says, no, that the way that we do this is that we inconvenience you into paying attention because otherwise we'd be waiting forever for you to listen to us. Um, you, we think, you know, even, and this is not just a, in this, you know, along the political spectrum, you, you see many, uh, there's a debate within the Democratic Party right now about what the future of the Democratic Party is, to what extent it should be, quoting, uh, should be courting uh, people who might be described as white moderates. Um, and that same letter from Birmingham jail had some choice words about um, the role of white moderates and whether or not they were in fact the people specifically impeding the progress of, of white Americans or, or black Americans even more so than those in the Klan robes, right? And so I, I do think that we like to sometimes think that the writings of King were so long ago and so distant when in reality I think they're, they're very germane to kind of our contemporary conversations, um, but that's a lot harder. Um, it's a lot harder to vote for an invasive war um, if you know and believe how what Dr. King thought about foreign conflict. It's a lot harder to oppose your union when you know that MLK was basically a labor organizer, right? And so, and so I do think that we need to all collectively grapple more with what his actual politics and policy solutions were um, if we are all going to collectively once a year get together and tell fairy tales about who he was. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Can I jump, jump in? I just want to address a part of the question that you didn't talk about. Uh, to the gentleman who asked the question, he asked, where would we like to see it go from here? I think that the, the whole issue, there are many, many issues that still need to be addressed, but systemic racism as opposed to white cheats and burning crosses is really the issue today. Invisible forms of racism. I grew up with the third bathroom and the and the colored water fountains. All of that is now gone. But there are some invisible enemies that threaten the future of of uh, our community that I would love to see addressed. And one of them, right at the height of it, I cannot stress how important it is is repairing the criminal justice system. Seventy percent of our people are incarcerated with nonviolent crimes. And, and they're locked up there through plea deals and plea bargaining and the corruption that exists inside the criminal justice system is helping to destroy families. It's destroying families. It's leaving women to raise children alone. It's leaving children without fathers and now uh, more, more, uh, in, in more contemporary stats without mothers. And until we go back and fix some of the things, in, in fact, considering the fact that some of the people who are incarcerated in jail are incarcerated in jail for 
petty crimes, for marijuana uses, for, for crimes that the law has changed. And, and, and the judge now can sit up and smoke a joint in an area where you just put somebody in jail for it. We, we have to find a way. We haven't, our, our criminal justice system hasn't caught up with the 21st century. And our families are suffering for it. And it is a new form of slavery. And I think that we really need to address it. That's where I would like to see it go. Thank you, Bishop Jakes. Hashtag race in America. Break the Twitter tonight. Yes, sir. Yeah, first of all, I want to thank PNP for having this and thank the, uh, the, the, the panelists. It's been very helpful. Uh, I guess I have, I have a concern that I'm not sure can be answered, but I'd like you to at least think about it. Uh, we are clearly uh, aware that the stock market is raising, is, is, is going crazy, it seems, and that corporations are making lots of money and lots of profit. And with that profit and money, they tend to be influencing uh, our government and our society in, in humongous ways. Uh, and oftentimes, even with crimes and people being convicted, they move in the wrong direction, are doing the wrong things. And the people who we tend to hold accountable, who are in the media, are usually the CEO or the corporate leader. I would like us to begin to think about the board of directors, because it's the board of directors that want profit and that want to support the CEOs to go after things, and, and they give the directions. But they stay behind the scenes, and they are quietly, quietly doing this, and they have responsibility. So I guess my concern is, can we, is there a way we can look at these board of directors, some of us may even know members of some significant boards, and what do they do to change the direction of the corporation rather than just blame a CEO and fire him and move on? Activism. Activism, yeah. I, th I think he wants an answer. <laughs> Everything that uh, people have talked about in the last few uh, questions can be influenced by activism. Uh, what your church does, that issue about what the church is doing, whatever, you can have activism in the church to make your organize in the church so that the church goes in the direction you want if it's not engaged in social programs. So that's an arena for activism. The corporate, if you want to change what the corporation does, the board of directors, when we wanted corporations to stop dealing with South Africa, exactly. we went down and closed down Shell Oil's headquarters. We closed it down, <laughs> okay? So there's activism around that too. There's also people who are shareholders getting them to uh, vote on shareholder resolutions and who's on the board. So those are all forms of activism. I hope there's a lot more focus on this because I think they're players here who could be our allies and they need to be made accountable and recognize it. Thank you so much. That's a very good point. Yes, ma'am. Good evening. I just want to have to quickly recognize that I appreciate the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for uh, bringing this this event, allowing my husband and myself to come and be amongst everyone here. And um, I want to thank Politics and Pros for having this. As a young girl, my uncle used to bring me here um, and has shared it with his, uh, his children. And it serves as an example, hopefully in other communities, that there's places to have dialogue and uh, civil yes. conversation around topics that are really hot. 
Um, so thank you for that. I wanted to just comment and question really briefly. You had mentioned um, about the topic of race in America and what does it look like going forward. And I wanted to know if the topic will ever change to being nationality in America. Um, because, you know, since race sometimes can um, limit or define or box some of us, I, you know, for myself, I identify myself as an Israelite, um, part by way of the uh, transatlantic slave trade. So, what race do I fit and how can I be part of this conversation? Um, and then the, the other question I wanted to ask you about activism and just, uh, it's just beautiful. You are right, it is no greater high. Um, we do um, volunteer work in the prisons on a regular basis and working with women and teaching them parenting and fa fathers teaching them parenting as well because the restructuring of family is really what's going to make a difference as we repeat and repair the generational curse of, of the dysfunctions and whatnot. I wanted to ask you, um, um, you had mentioned about um, Trump and the issue with Trump um, as being sort of a strategy towards um, the surprise strategy of some of the things he's doing now from legal immigration to illegal Im immigration and being uh, surprised by that. I know that some of the pastors and, and Christian organizations had pretty much, um, I guess there was some support for Trump at some point, and I was just wondering if maybe you could give us an update and where that might stand, not that you speak for all, but if there's any insights you can give us to some of that collaborative support. Okay, thank you. Now, thank I want to talk to you on the first thing. Mm -hmm. I am so thankful for, for politics and pros and the owners for doing Race in America. I'm sure we can incorporate um, you know, national before you say that, may I say something about that? No, don't say that. This program, young lady, where'd she go? She's born, this huh? is not about only black people coming That's to talk about the question of their own race and everybody here is of a particular race. It's about discussing the issue of race in America and anybody can come and discuss the issue. And race is an issue in America. Yes. It has been an issue. Is the, the, this race is America's original sin. Madison and Jefferson both said that, actually. Uh, and it remains an unresolved problem. There are other problems. You can have yeah. And we've talked and we've talked about it in, in these last five programs. We've talked about so many we've had a, a wide swath. I mean, I, I will take that into consideration. I really take what you say into consideration as well. But I'm gonna say this to you as well. And I, I hear you when you say you're a black Israelite, right? Correct? Or what did you what do you say you say you're an Israelite? Right, okay. And I and I appreciate that. But I'm gonna say this to you. And unfortunately in this time when people see you, the first thing they see is color. And then they see your gender. And I know, I know what you are, you know, what you've told me and you professed what you are, but the unfortunate thing is people don't see that. They see you as a black woman. And that's, an and that's sad, and that is an issue of race, that's an issue of race in America. And I hear you, I hear you so, I mean, I, it's sad. We are not individual, we are not who we are in the eyes of the people who see us. We are, once you walk in, in front of some people, you are black and then you are a woman. And as Shirley Chisholm said, you have a double whammy. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman to run for president of the United States in 1972. That's what she said. So That's what she said. Okay, go, no, but she had some more. She, should, should I, 
do it. Yes, can yes, I, yes, okay. Bishop. As best I can tell, uh, by and large, the the primarily the largest group of white evangelicals seem to be very supportive of, of President Trump. I think that support is still there, even though it is waning to some minute degree. I think, by and large, it is still there, and I think that they do make up a part of his base. And he doesn't go to church. <laughs> he does not go to church. No comment. And for <laughs> he went for Christmas. I'm serious, though. That he doesn't. The, the vast majority, the vast majority of African Americans doesn't quote scripture either. Don't don't ascribe to that level of support. For and he President doesn't have Trump. a pet. There may be some, but by and large, they don't. Thank you. No, he doesn't. Stop, stop, stop. Okay, anyway. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Stop. No, but I'm serious. I mean, the president, I think I've only seen him in church twice, and, this, and it's not even a year yet. Christmas was one of them. Stop, Dr. Barry. Yes. So, if I might, uh, the issue of race is, the way that it's treated anyways, is fundamentally a question of wealth, power, privilege, and survival. So here's the problem. It's not just race that's the issue. It's also a generational thing. We were talking about how in the 40s and 50s, uh, the disparity between black and white families was actually not that great. In the 60s and 70s, it was still closer then than it is now. One of the things that changed is the way that earnings work. Uh, people now earn less, they get less in terms of benefits. Like if you were to adjust for productivity and inflation, the minimum wage would be something 26 an hour instead of the 725 that we have. So the current generation that's coming up in that, they don't have the resources to feel secure enough in their own survival to step out, to be out in the streets, to be protesting, to risk losing their jobs, to spend time in prison knowing they're not going to get another one. So for the elders in the room, and not just on the panel, but those over 40 in the room generally, how do we <laughs> engage the rest of you? Boy, that hurt. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that really hurt. <laughs> And, and before you get upset about the age thing, 40 and older, you're an elder, okay. It's, it's not about being an elder, it's about that was the last point in time where you could earn a wage that would allow you to survive. Okay. Is that that went away somewhere towards the late 70s, the 80s. After that point, it became a very quickly diminishing prospect. So that at this point, your chances of being able to stand on your own are reduced. So what about that intergenerational scaffolding? Sometimes we'll learn things from those that have done things before, but how do we reach out to get those who are worried about their retirement to help those that are worried about being able to I'm gonna get go a job to in the first on place? That. I'm going to go to West and, and Bishop Jameson. Okay, okay, okay. 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 You, you no, I'll, I'll deter to my, to defer to my elder. And then, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, now. So oh, wow, thank you very much. I, I mean, uh, right, 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 right. I, I, I think it's a very complicated issue in a contemporary society to be able to bring the level of income up to the level that it that is really appropriate. And I think it ties into the myth that we have taught our children. My generation has taught our children what our parents taught us, and erroneously led them to believe that it is about a job. When in fact, the reason the reason I wrote the book Soar is because entrepreneurship seems to be. Uh, uh, the way to go and a possible answer. And I know there are problems with that, access to capital and so <laughs> forth and so on. I get it. So you don't have to come back and tell me that. I know that, but read the book. There are some things in there. No, I'm serious. I, I'm, I'm serious about, 
I am serious about ownership. I'm serious about the vision I see amongst millennials and the dreams and the talent base that exists amongst them. And I know that there are problems there, access to capital, and I know you have to start small, and I know that there are problems that make that a difficult process. But ultimately, if you can survive the vicissitudes of entrepreneurship, you can not only control your destiny, but the destiny of your children. It is a conversation that, that is underserved in our community, and it is undermodeled in our community. I think that it needs to be modeled, and there, you say, what should our generation do for the next generation? Mentorships, modeling is a part of the process. I can see you don't agree with it, but, but you asked me for what I thought. I'll get back, I'll let you have your say in a minute. We don't teach, we taught our children, we, we taught our children to get a job, go to school, get a job, and everything would be all right. They went to school and they got a big bill. And, and, and they cannot get the kinds of jobs that really substantiates even the, the debt from getting the education. And it is a huge problem. To, to, I think that needs to be addressed. The other area where it needs to be addressed is where we have a growing population coming out of incarceration who will not get a job because people will not hire them. Often they are the same people who are telling them you ought to take care of your family are the same people who will not hire them or change the laws that allow them to have a right to vote so they are losing their voice too. I know that entrepreneurship is not the way for everybody, but when you look at it, if all of the jobs in America came back, if all of them came back, still 70% of the American population is employed in small businesses. And I'm not saying that it is for everybody, but it is a conversation that is seldom heard in our community. Generally, we work for somebody. Even if we are the employees and we are the customers, we are seldom the owner. We have people selling us everything from hair care product <laughs> to, to ribs and chitlins. And, and something has to change in the psyche of our culture where we do at least consider entrepreneurship so that we can soar and so our visions can be realized and we can have a better chance. All right, before I go to Wes, you have some people sitting in here. What is a chitling? <laughs> What's a chitling? Let it go, let it go, let it go. Oh, Wes. If I may, before what we get too far chitling? into the next bit. <laughs> Go on with a chitlin, a chitterling. Chitterling. Sorry, we don't have time. I gotta, I gotta cut you off. Wes, are you gonna, you gonna respond? Clarify the question. I, I think he covered it. Okay, great. Thank you, sir. Next, um, and this lady in the brown is the last one. I'm trying to get to you. We're gonna go fast. I, oh gosh, she's got a whole. No, 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 no. Okay. I have a very. She got a book. On I have a very it. quick question. Um, as a journalist, and this is really um for you, Dr. Ryan, and also for you, Wesley. Um, we know when Restworm and Cornish started Freedom's Journal. They said, we wish to plead our own cause. Too long have others spoken for us. So I want to address the issue of um, black press mm -hmm. and whether or not um, we have civil rights organizations um, setting agendas at the beginning of every presidency. But when it comes to the black press, it feels like we have failed to do that. And I feel like the problem is when I watch uh, major networks and I work for a major network, we now have talking heads and it feels like infomercials um, when we're watching the news. But we don't have um, journalists, experienced journalists, especially people of color, except for the few that they choose, to come on. That way when we have conversations when the president says derogatory things against um, Africa and Haiti, we can have someone come on and dress 
and, and say, no, take those words seriously because there were countries who actually used immigration and then brought in Europeans to whiten their societies. And we don't lose that information, but we don't, I don't see that. And is it because the black uh, press has not come together for an agenda, a collective agenda? Or should we even do that? I think the black press needs to get together. Um, you know, we tell the stories that other people don't know or they choose not to know. We have to be there. I mean, there are days when, you know, I can talk about anything, uh -huh. but when there are black issues, I'm a lot of times there. And the sad piece about it is I shed a lot of light in dark spaces. Uh -huh. And I think each community needs to be in a newsroom because a lot of times people just don't understand or don't want to understand. Right. So therefore, I think, I mean, you know, mine is not a traditional path, okay? 50 years old, I've been doing this for 21 years, and just this year they just said, oh, oh, where you been? Right. I've been there. Right. So this is what I'm, and you've been there, right? Yes. So sometimes, and, and that's what I'm saying. But is the power Dr. in us Dr. coming but together? But, but, but people like Dr. Ben, I don't see her on TV like she should be. Exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why she's here, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, you know, she's a thought, she's an activist. She's got, she is walking history. And the problem is, I don't know what the thought process is of these networks, but, you know, she's on, you know, she used to be on a lot. And sometimes people change, I don't know what it is, but I think what we have to do is just understand that we, we bring something to the table and sometimes we have to knock the doors down because they're not going to come looking for us. That's just it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You know, I think that there's a, uh, so there are a few things here. You know, the, fir the first is that, you know, I think that there's this question of what is the role of the black press and, and is the black press essential in this moment and in this moment that we are in currently, right? Um, there's more press than there has ever been before. There are more media outlets. There are more physical formats in which you can do this. Cable news is still a relatively recent invention in terms of our history, much less the internet and all these other things that we're looking at. Um, and, and is there a role for a, a a black press to specifically focus on uh, stories from the black community, telling those stories and empowering those storytellers, right? The diversity crisis within journalism, uh, in within mainstream journalism, I think underscores the need and the importance for a vibrant black press, right? That we still, there's still many mainstream newsrooms um, in which the black faces inside of them are few and far between, um, much less to say the Asian American faces inside of them and the Latino faces inside of them. Um, I, I think that there needs to be, journalism is still, it, journalism is currently largely uh, a, a field for folks with some level of socioeconomic privilege. Um, that it, it's a field that, in many cases, requires some level of a degree, um, and also requires you to enter a field where you can expect to basically never make any money. Um, now, many folks end up do and end up <laughs> making money, um, but you signed up with the ex, you know the av the median salary for journalists about forty two thousand dollars a year. You signed up not expecting to make a bunch of money, even if you ended up getting a little lucky, right? The, um, and that becomes a self-selecting group of people to begin with, those who have the means to do that. I, I do think we have to have a conversation about the, the status of the black press currently. I think very often, I actually spent a lot of time thinking about um, how we are probably a decade or two away from losing a lot of our historic, historically black newspapers, um, um, where, where in many cases you are one generation of a family dying 
uh, before community loses that. Um, at the same time, I think we have to have a conversation about the vibrancy and the function and role of many of these uh, organizations and, and the need for some of them to pivot and change and to reinvest resources into ways in which there's still vital, vibrant journalism happening, right? Um, one thing there that I think is important to think about is there's a, a big generational shift, um, I think, between the conventional wisdom of a young black journalist coming into this field now versus even just one generation ago. And my father was a, a journalist. And, um, the, that for the, most, for the previous generation, there was a real, in many ways, hesitance among a lot of black journalists to become race people to become race reporters, to cover issues of, of, of blackness. Not that there weren't many, and there are not still many who do, but this feeling of would it be possible at a time when journalism was diversifying, if you became the black person who writes about black people, would you ever be able to get any other job again in the room? Um, what, what's interesting <laughs> is that I, I think that this current generation, yeah. um, in part because I think we've all been empowered to run our mouths whenever we want, however we want, via social media, um, is one that feels much more strongly about if this is if if you care about something that is what you should pursue um, I haven't spent much time in my career worried about well if I write about black people I'll be able to write about white people I, I've never had a shortage of, of desire from bosses for me to write about white people there are plenty of uh, it, it, but but I, but I do think that um, but I but I do think that there's a a converse, you know, your question was kind of framed around this idea, should there be a collective um, agenda agenda right um, and, and frankly I think that and I, and I think that for me at least, uh, personally as a black reporter working in a mainstream newsroom, you know, my agenda is always one of accountability. And I think that an agenda of accountability um, will disproportionately affect those who are disproportionately um, disenfranchised uh, by unaccountable systems. But beyond that, I do think that the, we need to take the temperature of the black press as it exists and have some real honest conversations about the extent to which it is capable in this moment of doing that, and I think then reinvesting some of our resources and our talents, um, because I do think that it's important to have you know um, these organizations um, and their voices being there. Thank you. Great, thanks. Um, and I also understand that um, from Ken Strickland, the the Washington bureau chief of NBC, he says there are a lot of blacks who are just not going into political journalism anymore. So it's it's the numbers are dwindling for blacks to be in political journalism at the White House, like myself. You know, we need all people. Now here's what we're gonna do. We got five minutes at this wonderful time. I know, but I'm gonna get you all in. I want you to ask, just ask your questions, and somebody's gonna take it. I thank you. Just ask the question. Thank you for standing so long. Oh, not a problem. Um, not too much intro, but I'm a Gen Xer and I'm a news junkie and I'm the person at work that everybody comes to when they have questions about what's going on in the world. And I have a millennial young lady that I work with. She's a mother of two and she and I was ranting as usual about the fact that the Russians have infiltrated our political system and the Congress is doing nothing about it. And she says to me, how do you know that they infiltrated our system? And I kind of looked at her cross-eyed and I said, you know, I kind of told her and she said, but how do you know that's true? Who said that? And I kind of started going into sourcing. And she says, well, how do you know they're telling the truth? And she starts telling about somebody on YouTube who said something. And, and, and what, what this led up to, and this is my question for my esteemed journalists on the panel, is what I see happening is that um, the millennial generation who do have all the social media, all the social media really is, is opinions. When you look at the news now, what you get are opinions. The president says something in a meeting, but now it becomes whose opinion? Um, who really believes he said that? So now when 
you can, when no, now nothing is a fact. And, and, and the people who need to be getting to the streets and to coalesce and, and really have a movement, they don't know what to believe. They don't know even where to source news. So my question to you is, is there anything that can be done or is being done to bring back the integrity of certain, um, of facts, of, of, of journalism being a, a place where you go to get facts and not just opinions? Okay, thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you for that question. Yes, sir. My uh, statement and question was uh, to uh, T.D. Jakes. Uh, do you see the parallels uh, just in terms of uh, in Egypt, when you had the children of Israel enslaved, you had a situation where they were in such cruel bondage and anguish of spirit that they could not hear that even though God sent Moses to tell them things were going to get better because of their pain and suffering, they couldn't really hear from the Creator when he was about to do something magnanimous, magnanimous. Do, do you see that or, or feel that something has to break and something has to give? Are, are you comparing that to today's society and what we're right. going through as right. a race of, of people? Yes. Okay, uh, Bishop Jace, hold on, because we're gonna go one more question and I'm gonna let you come back. Okay, hold on. Yes, ma'am, and she's our last question. Good evening and thank you all for being here tonight and all of your contributions. Two questions uh, to April Ryan and Bishop T.D. Jakes. April Ryan, as a avid viewer of the news and seeing the press conferences, I'm kind of like really so fed up with Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the way that she answers you all's questions is so disrespectful. Is there any way that you up? can ask her to, I am respectfully answer, asking this question, can you respectfully give me an answer and not be insulting to me? Oh, I wasn't being, I was just, I, no, no, oh, no. oh, 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 I get you, yeah. I wasn't feeling guilty, I just didn't want any, any kind of, any, want anyone to feel kind of, way. okay, I'm taking up time, okay, now the next question. So, the, <laughs> so second question to you, um, Bishop T.D. Jakes, um, would you be interested in offering Trump any counseling or advice? And if you were, what would, be, what would be the three main points that you would share with him? Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm glad I got that straight. Now to my journals, the question of how do we bring integrity back in the news, uh, uh, facts versus opinion? Yeah. Um, I, I think the, the onus is gonna be on uh, news organizations and media organizations to start acting like it. Again, I, I think that uh, someone once said that Trump has the ability to not only bring down his allies, but also his enemies. Um, and the, the, the press, in, in many cases, and I'm not talking about opinion journalists. I'm an opinion journalist. I get paid to give my opinion, um, not to not play it straight. Um, but my colleagues on the news side, who are supposed to be playing it straight, um, I think to the, to the um, the woman's question, it's hard to tell anymore whether you are reading the news side or the opinion page. And if these news organizations want to uh, uh, you know, regain that respect that they once had, uh, th that's gonna be on them to, to, uh, to, to, to clean up their act and start acting like the objective journalists that, um, that they claim to be. So I, I, I think that it is a challenge and it's unfortunate. I mean, that, that is a very sad commentary on, uh, on what's happened to, to the mainstream media. All right, Bishop Jakes, the parallels between 
the children of Israel in bondage in Egypt? Well, you know, I think there are always parallels that can be taken out of the scriptures that are comparable to the times that we live in today. There's certainly distinctives between the two. And <clears throat> I think the brother's point is, has the oppression reached a level of breaking point? Uh, I'm not really sure about that. Uh, every time I think it's at a breaking point, it goes further in, in some way or some regard. Every time I think I've heard the most shocking thing that you could ever hear, some, something else happens. But I don't think that we should ever lose sight of the fact, in spite of the audacity of, of the times in which we live right now, I don't think that we should lose sight of the fact that we have gained ground, that in many ways things are better than they were in many regards. I'm not saying that we should rest on that and stop there, but having lived at a time where the lynchings were real and where, where some of my relatives we never found because they ran away and we don't know whether they're living or dead, we have made some progress. Is it enough? Absolutely not. Is there more to be done? Absolutely. So I don't know whether we're at the tipping point. It might be better to think that every generation has a tipping point. And it, this might be the tipping point for this generation. I don't know. We have to wait and see. Also now, are you a counselor? Should you be or could you be for President Trump? <laughs> <laughs> you, and what three things would you tell him? Stop tweeting. <laughs> yeah, stop, stop tweeting to, to get your voice out there. We have to do that. You don't. You, you can easily get your voice out there, and you can get your voice out there in the kinds of way that dispels misunderstandings and that sort of thing. Uh, be, be the voice to the nation. The election is over, so uh, let's be the leader that the nation needs to move the country forward. And thirdly, when it comes to international policy, words do matter. You, you can incite, even, even though they are debating about uh, the mental health of the president, we don't know for sure about, and, and I'll leave that out there in the air for whatever it may be. What we don't know for sure is the mental health of some of the other leaders around the world. And, and while you may do something intending to provoke an expected reaction, you might get a reaction that causes us to lose millions of people. The, but I want to go back and say this. Very seldom uh, would, would I do it. I don't know because I'm not sure that I could pierce uh, the confusion and the drama that exists right now to really have a voice that can be heard. It is very difficult to get around a leader of that magnitude and not have splashed on you uh, the drama and the inconsistencies and the photo ops that would suggest that you are supporting them as opposed to informing them. And, um, and, and I'm gonna give everyone a chance to, to say their goodbyes, but I thank you and I'm gonna answer your question. Um, really fast and succinct, the White House Correspondents Association um, is the advocacy group for for the White House Press Corps. They are talking to her, uh, the press secretary, and the former press secretary, they did. But when it comes to um, Sarah Huckabee and what is perceived of her being disrespectful to me, um, I will say this, um, a couple, I think it was last week, Sarah Huckabee and I had, we broke bread together, neither one of us fixed the bread <laughs> or baked the pie two doors down. And it was an air and out session. Now, we'll see what happens, but I think the conversation continues. Um, 
you know, it's a reset, but I don't know, we'll see, because depending upon what day, you know, and, and she basically reflects the president. When you see her and her mood, that is the president of the United States. That's what he wants her to do. Well, the audience of one, but that's what he wants her to do. He's watching in his executive time and in the Oval Office, he's watching. So, you know, it is what it is, you know, but I thank you for being concerned. And now um, you wanted to respond to the Twitter real fast. I'm gonna ask no, each I one of you. I was just gonna say the reason why Trump can't stop using Twitter, uh, Bishop, is because he cannot use the mainstream media because it's connected to the question about the bias in the, or the opinion getting into the news in the mainstream media. And when the mainstream media made clear from the first day he got elected that their duty, there was a piece in the New York Times, for those of you who read the Times, on the front page by, I think it's Jim Ruddenberg, somebody like that, in which he said that the major task of the paper during this period had to be to go after Trump and to do everything about, you know, dissecting him, made it clear. And so the mainstream media, which reflects the views of people like me and some of you in here, uh, in fact, is so adamant about Trump that if he just tried to use them as a place to talk and to get his point across, his base would never hear him. And so he, he's using Twitter, at, Twitter as a way to bypass them, just like other presidents have used local media, you know, how they go to bypass. I, I guess what I meant was some of these policies are serious policies and to be limited to such few characters to express an issue is reprehensible <laughs> and because the leaders around the world are reading them and having to take them seriously it, it we have never had we you can my add, button is bigger than yours yeah we, you, you, exactly that that kind of thing is, is really concerning I have always wondered maybe it's a strategy in fact, to change the subject, because I've seen that happen sometimes, because it seems like he, he sends a tweet and all the media jumps on it, and that becomes the subject for the next three days. And so, yeah, okay. Yeah, gotcha. All right, here's right, what I wanna right. say, here's what I'm gonna say. I thank you all, we thank you all. It's the fifth wonderful. installment of Race in America, thank you. The fifth installment, we have Jason Riley. Wes Lowry, Bishop T.D. Jakes, and Dr. Mary Frances Berry. This was a great conversation on this day to remember a man who looked for first-class citizenship for all. Thank you so much. We will be talking to you again about the next installment if politics and prose would like. And listen, thank you guys. Thank you so much once again. Dr. Mary Frances Berry, Bishop T.D. Jakes, Wes Lowry, and Jason Raleigh. And I'm April Ryan. See you later. Have a great day. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.